Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Couples Carnage. So, on Monday's episode, we went to drug dealing with Clarence in Alabama in Tony Scott's True Romance and saw a lot of people get killed as a result, although they were largely collateral damage. Today, however, we meet two more proactive killers as Mickey and Mallory Knox become mass-murdering celebrities in Oliver Stone's wild, psychedelic and horrifying assassination of the media from 1994 in the US and 1995 in the UK, we're talking Natural Born Killers. We'll have a champion at the end of this show, but which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters, Batonga, 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 and Batongaville. I'm Alex Zane. Chris Tilly. <laughs> yeah, that's the quote I picked. That is the quote I picked. It's my favourite quote from the movie. I'll explain more later. Uh, we are without Victoria again today. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, a show without the balancing force. It's just the boys. The boys. But I am sitting in Vicky's seat. Mm, how's so, that? How are you feeling about that? You it's a lot of it's a lot more eye contact than I'm used to with me because I I'm the one that doesn't sit opposite anyone. Vicky mm. and Alex sit opposite each other, and so now I'm looking directly into your eyes, and I don't know if I like it or not. Come on, they are nice eyes. Yeah, thanks very much. They're mine. They're mine. Um, uh, part two, then. I mean, there's not really much to say at the top of this show. Let's really get into it. I did uh, True Romance on the uh, the Monday episode, and Victoria, she gave you Natural Born Killers. Uh, are you excited about the journey we're about to go on? Yes, and a bit frightened as well. Okay. It's a tough old movie. Hell it is. Hell it is. All right, then. Uh, Chris Tilly. Chris Thrilly. Take us on a journey. Uh, for my synopsis, I went to our old friend Common Sense Media. Oh, hell. <laughs> wow. uh, that's a website that rates movies so parents can feel good about the entertainment choices they make for their kids. Yeah. Uh, which seems like the logical place to go when tackling a film about violence and the evils of the media. Um, and what I didn't realise is not only do they tell you what goes on in the film, they let children review the films and do a guide for parents. That seems uh, sort of self-defeating. If you're making a website to prevent children from exposing themselves to something like this and then going, but by the way, as a child, why don't you have a watch of this and send us your review in? <laughs> yeah. You can win some pizza tokens. So this is what a 13-year-old um, had to say about the movie. Do a 13-year-old voice. <laughs> Come on, you know you've got one in you. <laughs> I've not got a 13-year-old in me. <laughs> oh, the movie. The movie's bad enough. The movie's horrifying enough. All right, here we go. This movie is strange but surprisingly good and it is really horrific and you have to tell yourself that this is just a movie and you will enjoy it more. It follows two traumatised individuals who fall in love and go on a killing spree in order to rid the world of evil people who is everyone that crosses their path. Their environment is always disturbing. Oddly enough, you find yourself cheering for the bad guys by the end of the movie. This movie is extremely fast-paced and just so insane, you have to love it. It is so bad that it is good, making this movie a classic above any other. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, I don't think... First of all, congratulations on that voice. You do have a 13-year-old in you. And secondly, um, they have got no idea about what they... They're like, they kill a lot of people who are evil. <laughs> 
That's the whole point of the movie is they're killing innocent people. Well, this, this kid's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, 13-year-old Wally. <laughs> Mickey and Mallory. Feared by thousands. I love you so much, baby. I love you. Watched by millions. We're fighting. Can't stop fighting. Nobody can. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., and Tommy Lee Jones. What do you have to say to your fans? You ain't seen nothing yet. Natural born killers. In the media circus of life, they were the main attraction. Okay, as we established on the um, last episode, this uh, was born uh, in Roger Avery's head, pretty much. And here's what he had to say about The Open Road, uh, the script that turned into Natural Born Killers. He said, uh, this was an early screenplay of mine about the odd couple relationship between an uptight businessman and an out-of-control hitchhiker who travel into a hellish Midwestern town together. It was only 17 pages long. Quentin Tarantino asked me if he could finish it a year later. It doesn't resemble my original story in the slightest. He has, in fact, transformed it into something much more brilliant that will eventually become the bits and pieces that make up the foundations of true romance, Natural Born Killers and Pulp Fiction. Oh, I thought, didn't I say on Monday's episode it was 500 pages long? Yeah, no, I've got the 500 page. I think Tarantino came back to him with 500 pages. Oh, I see. Yes, so he started with 70 pages. Tarantino turned it into 500. Mm. Uh, I said I was going to do a sidebar about um, Roger Avery. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots... The Roger Avery has a website where he talks about a lot of the things that went on between him and Tarantino. And ultimately, what really drove them apart was the movie Sleep With Me, uh, which was directed by a guy called Rory Kelly, and it features Quentin Tarantino acting in it. And... Um, it was, Roger says uh, the Did film, Roger Avery write it? Uh, I'll explain Okay He, he says uh, It features Quentin Tarantino Doing my riff On the homosexual undertones Of Tony Scott's Top Gun Important lesson learned Intellectual properties Can be taken from you If you put them out there In the air Result is to never speak To anyone else Ever again And withdraw from society Keep few friends And speak to them rarely So he's pretty angry That that was his speech And Quentin used it In Sleep With Me So there Bit of background it's difficult, isn't it, though? Because, I mean, look, you know, without knowing the full story, uh, which is often the point at which I enter a conversation, uh, <laughs> was it was Roger Avery, had Roger Avery put that down as a script or was it something that he said? Because it sounds to me, when you read a lot about Tarantino, like the whole, um, the, the, the speech that uh, we talked about on Monday's episode with uh, uh, Walken and Dennis Hopper, that was a speech he'd heard a guy he lived with give. And he was like, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to mm. put it in a script. So uh, unless you uh, are with, I mean, it, it kind of the responsibility falls to you to sort of go, Quentin's one of those guys who just sort of sees and hears things. He's mm. a magpie. He'll hear that and he'll go, I'm going to use that. And if if you're not saying, sorry, that that's a script that I'm writing. If you're just saying it and it's a riff you're doing socially, do you own it? Well, I guess if you're best friends and you're both writer-directors, that's a difference. I remember I used to knock about with a writer-director and I would I caught him writing down something while we were sitting in a bar and I said, what are you, what are you writing? And he said, oh, something you said I want to use. And I said, what? And he goes, no, I don't want to, I don't want to say but um, and I and it just I stopped hanging out with him because I suddenly realised he was kind. I felt like he was listening, waiting for me to say something interesting that he can use. And I'm like, that's weird. I guess there should be a rule that you shouldn't do it to your friends. But Alan Bennett said, like, you know, Alan Bennett was always like, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the ideas that I came up with in a lot of the dialogue was he used to sit quietly mm. in like cafes and just listen to other people's conversations. And you know, as a writer, you are pulling from real mm. life. I guess. The rule is what then? That if it's a friend that you have to ask? Well, particularly if it's Roger Avery who's writing his own <laughs> scripts and he's come up with this. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. If it was for a script and he was sort of riffing and going, what do you think of that for a script? And Quentin went, it's bloody marvellous. <laughs> I'm having it. <laughs> um, so here's another quote. This is from Quentin Tarantino on Natural Born Killer's connection to true romance. He says, in the original script, Clarence wanted to be in the movies. He wanted to be a screenwriter. Like me, Clarence wanted to write movies. He's got some 500-page magnum opus. Nothing is typed. Like the Unabomber's manifesto. He carries it everywhere. He goes, these random pages. But the script he's writing is natural-born killers. 
And so the thing is that you'd have the situation where you would see Clarence and Alabama do their thing and then he'd read her scenes from Natural Born Killer Script and then you'd see this fancy version of Mickey and Mallory, the sexy young couple, the sociopath serial killers on the run, and it fucking worked. There's no doubt about it. It was just too fucking long. All right. But there was an aspect that even though thematically I loved it, I almost needed to take them out because they started to be the best scenes. I go, if Mickey and Mallory are that interesting, maybe they deserve their own movie. Yep. I wish I hadn't said all that on Monday's episode because I think you delivered it slightly better. Uh, <laughs> I think I mangled it. But there you go. Uh, we're talking in stereo. We're coming. We're, we're singing from that same hymn sheet here, Chris. Yeah. And, and the reason Tarantino didn't direct Natural Born Killers is he said, I think of them as old girlfriends. Uh, that's true romance, Natural Born Killers. I love them, but I didn't want to marry them anymore. And so that's when Oliver Stone got involved. So that's interesting then. So Quentin Tarantino didn't want to direct Natural Born Killers. That is a direct quote from him. Okay. He said, I think he just moved on and matured. Fine. Um, so Stone wanted to make a larger than life satire, he said. Um, he said he was also quite mad at the time. He said his life was falling apart. He was going through a divorce. His family was breaking up and he wanted to make um, an anarchic film because he was living an, in an anarchic state. Which sounds quite terrifying. I'd say he, hit, he, he did it, though. <laughs> I mean, he absolutely did it. it, is, it it's a breakdown of a movie. And yeah, it, it didn't start like that. He said, initially, I was going to make a summer action movie, something that Arnie would be proud of. <laughs> I saw this. What, at what point, though? Um, here's the thing, and a question that we can discuss now. Have you read Quentin Tarantino's script of this? No, I do have a, a direct quote from it i'm going to use later okay so i'm about halfway through i uh started reading it in preparation for the show but i just ran out of time um it's really interesting and it's a a much 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 better script than this movie now taking direction the direction of the movie and the way it looks out out of the equation at the moment the structure of quentin tarantino's original script makes so much more sense and it's a quentin tarantino structure basically the whole um uh, prison uh, situation. Uh, it, Wayne Gale is the central character, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, and it, it sets up so it dips in and out of the prison. So it starts with Jack Scagnetti being brought in to the prison warden who's come to the police station and he's like, I want someone to transport Mickey and Mallory to this mental asylum uh, where they're going to be lobotomized, and I want you to do it. So you immediately get that really important and about the only plot point in the actual film that Oliver Stone made at the start and then it goes it dips in and out and then you go back to Mickey Mallory and then you go back to Wayne Gale making the show uh, like trying to plan this interview and structurally it's so good and that's one of my biggest problems with Natural Born Killers structurally it's a mess Mm. so this is what Oliver Stone had to say about um, the changes he made he said when Quentin wrote those two characters Mickey and Mallory they were originally based on Bonnie and Clyde, I guess. But he basically wrote a different movie than the one I've made. He wrote a very nice, clever takeoff on an AIP picture with a 90s wryness. It was mostly about the TV journalist and Mickey and Mary were just sort of crazy stick figures. Yeah. I think he was hurt that I rewrote it so much, but I told him that I can't really make what he, as a 26-year-old, would make as a first film. As a 47-year-old filmmaker, it doesn't interest me. I want another level of socio-political comment and I want to deal with the whole justice system. I want to deal with the killers, where they come from, who their parents are. But does he want, as a 47-year-old man, deal with those ideas as a 15-year-old child? <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I think there's a lot of wanting to have his cake and eat it uh, with this film. Because he talks about the fact that he'd been in Vietnam, he'd seen and been around violence uh, and found it repugnant. But then is, does the film not wallow in that violence on multiple occasions? He says, he talks about speed and true lies. He says they use violence as a gimmick to adrenalise the audience. I can't do that. And yet I do think there's a pleasure he's taking in um, some of that violence. Yeah. I don't know. We, I mean, we can, we can talk about that as we, as we, as we work through it. But um, he, said he, he said America was changing at the time. OJ Simpson trial was around this point. Um, media was taking over our lives. News was becoming about profit and was disordering our belief system. And so his film is how the media, the police and the prison systems are all letting us down and they're letting Mickey and Mallory down. That's his... Yeah. It feels like there's a a lot here. It's, you know, 
the way you've said it, it actually goes like, there are these things that I'm going to address, mm. which isn't the movie. The movie is uh, like a, a melting pot of a billion ideas, mm-hmm. like from the nuclear family in America, like and what was sold by movies to the media and the way the media is glorifying crime and mm-hmm. creating more criminals. But it jumps about this sort of spreadsheet of so many different themes and never really nails one. I mean, by the end, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not really sure what I was meant to take from certain elements of it. I agree. There's, there's one particular element that I do uh, have an issue with about halfway through that we'll talk about. But um, uh, casting, uh, and then we'll get on to the film. Uh, Woody Harlson was coming off the back of cheers and white men can't jump an indecent proposal and i don't think any of us were prepared for this you know i mean we know him now as an actor that can do anything yep. but this was i remember this was quite something uh it was quite a shock uh oliver stone wanted him from the start woody said that i asked him why and he oliver stone told him i see violence in you he also said that he thought Woody represented white trash. <laughs> he said that when you when you see Woody Harrelson, you think white trash. And that's, well, his that's father why he his him. father was a hitman. He was, yeah. So uh, I don't know if that was public knowledge at the time, but he, he said that Oliver saw something in me that frightened me a little bit. Um, have you ever interviewed Woody, Woody Harrelson? Ah, uh, don't. Th- no, I haven't. I have. I interviewed him on one of the worst hangovers I've ever done an interview while uh, trying to keep inside. As it turns out, that is the best condition to interview Woody Harrelson. We got on like a house on fire. Oh, good. Because my, like, I had no filter. So I, I sit down with him. It was, oh, what's the movie called? Rampage. You know, the fucked up cop movie yes. he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's to talk about that, but also other films. And, um, and I sit down and I'm like, oh, man, I feel bad. Uh, but I said that to myself. And then... What do I what do I hate on a person's body more than anything else? Feet. Right. So what does Woody Harrelson do? He's like sits down, gets comfy, and then just sort of slips off his trainers. And I said to him, because I had no filter, I was like, sorry, you are that's fine. That's kind of okay, I guess. I mean, you sure get comfortable, but you gotta keep your fucking socks on. <laughs> and he went, he went, What? And I was like, you just I can't have your feet. I won't be able to interview you if you've got your feet out. He's like, you don't like feet? And I'm like, yeah, I no, I don't. But you just, <laughs> were you planning on doing that? He was like, I was. I'm like, can you keep your socks on? He's like, sure. So he kept his socks on and therefore everything was fine. And after that, he was like, you're a fucking man. We need to hang out more. <laughs> do you want to come to the party for Rampage tonight? And I'm like, yes, I do. Oh, awesome. I'm going to need a drink. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. He was great. He what, was great. What would you do if someone you're into, say an elderly gentleman, asked for like an ice, an empty ice bucket to be bought in and then used it as a spittoon during your interview? What the fuck? Yes. That happened to someone I know with a quite famous actor. A spittoon? <laughs> <laughs> like, were they were they chewing tobacco? I don't know what they were spitting. Well, they were just spitting into it. What the fuck? Yeah, it must have been tobacco. Just sort of dribbling into a bin in an interview is not acceptable. <laughs> to be honest, when I heard that story, I thought that's got to be that guy must be nearing the end of his life and his career. But he's done a lot of films since. He's regularly working. Wow. Was he was he an older gentleman? Yes. Right, yeah. Fine, yes. Fine. Yes. Anyway, a bit strange that. Um, you know, I'm going to make you tell me after this. Of course. Uh, Woody claims that he was the most sane actor on set. He said, and that's never happened to me before or since. Well, it was Robert Downey Jr. at that period. Yep, I agree with that. Tom Uh, Sizemore, yep, I agree with that. (laughs) And Tommy Lee Jones is kind of, you know... It's all kinds of crazy in his own way. Uh, So, uh, Juliette Lewis, uh, Oliver Stone just thought there was something weird and off-kilter about her, and he said she acts off her instincts and reacts like a cold snake. And, yeah, that's her. I've hung out with her a little bit. She's eccentric. Brilliant. She's she's great fun. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. says it was the wildest shoot he's been on. He said every affront to sanity and integrity was committed. And uh, by me, <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes, you know, I've, I, there's a lot of material on the Blu-ray of this film, um, and they talk about the fact that um, the producer says that during pre-production, Oliver Stone and the group of them went road tripping and did mushrooms, and then were hiding from the police, and and all that stuff was used in the film. Like they went on a journey not too dissimilar, just without the murders. Um, so he said Oliver Stone that he encouraged chaos because great energy comes out of it yeah yeah not necessarily great movies uh, <laughs> but great energy yeah I mean I don't know I mean what was what's, yeah I mean mushrooms sure they're fun but I just you know they are 
ridiculous at the same time. I just, I don't know. I think, yeah, anyway, we'll get into it. So what is your uh, memory of watching this? Do you have any history with this film, Alex? Uh, yeah, I don't want to say really, only because I know your views on piracy, Chris. Uh, you're not a fan. Uh I, I mean, video piracy, not you know, <laughs> not the high seas. Although I imagine you're not a fan of that either. Yeah, I watched the pirate VHS of it, and I will say this was before industrial level piracy. This was when you, you know, this was before the internet. So but, I had a VHS, but also you couldn't get it on video. I'm, I'm, I'm less upset about it when it was banned on video in England for quite a while, which I'll talk about. I, I'm going to talk about the controversy around the film after we've talked about the movie. But um, I think there's, you know, if, are you if, okay with that? Because I guess it was taken from a laserdisc or something. I'm not going to go on the record. Okay, well, uh, I, if it makes you feel uh, even worse uh, about what a, a young uh, tearaway I was, I also had the soundtrack uh, for this film, uh, which I, I listened to before I saw the movie. And to see the movie, you have to listen to the soundtrack and hear all these crazy bits of dialogue on the soundtrack. Uh, like, and then sort of like there's the bit where uh, it, it's. Um, the fight at the start where she murders them mm. they murdered them and it's uh, L7 shit list and they hear the dialogue of uh, the the dialogue of Mickey Mallory just before that and then to see it and go oh my god this is the bit that I've been listening to the reason I'm nervous to tell you is because also pirated C90 cassette my friend Phil Stark recorded the whole thing for me so I didn't even buy that it's not it's not you should it's not me you should be apologising to. It's Oliver Stone. They're not. He's not here. Uh, if he was, I wouldn't be saying <laughs> telling the story. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, let's talk about the movie then. Um, I'm going to split it into acts. Of course you are. Act one, meet Mickey and Mallory. Um, so it does kick off with that scene you just mentioned. We've got a shot of a wolf and then we're looking at a TV that's kind of images that going back in time. Leonard Cohen singing and then we meet them in a diner. I uh, saw him at the O2. Great, thanks for that. No worries. Uh, Mallory's dancing in front of a jukebox, uh, and this some some rednecks come in. There's a fight. There's some murder. But really, what we're seeing is a whole hodgepodge of imagery and visual style. It's like I've wrote that it's like a student's multimedia project. And it only gets worse. This is actually this is this is at the lower end of what this film does visually. There are eighteen different film formats in the movie: color, black and white, eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter animation, grainy CCTV, rear screen projection, front screen projection. So they're constantly distorting the picture. They're destabilizing everything. There's Dutch angles on the commentary. Oliver Stone goes on the record saying, "I wasn't drunk when I shot this. It just looks like I was." Um, and you've got overlapping imagery and dialogue. And there's three thousand cuts in this film and it took a year to edit bearing in mind there's about what 400 to 600 usually on a film yeah Mm. it's it makes it tough to watch i think it makes it it doesn't just make it tough to watch which it does the problem i have is that you've got this amazing cast delivering great performances you've got still the remnants albeit butchered you've got the remnants of a phenomenal script and every single one of those elements is ruined by the way this film looks. Mm. Because you're, if it, if the script wasn't great and the actors weren't great, which is quite often the case with student films, sure, fuck around with it visually as much as possible, but you ruin every other bit of this film. You, you, immediately you've got this thing going where you've got uh, something happening in colour and then black and white straight after. Mm. So the colour is what's happening in the real world and the black and white is the subtext and you're hearing what they're thinking, really. So the waitress offers Mickey a coffee, but really she wants to bone him. And that's, he does that. It's, I think it's a bit too clever for its own good, that, but then he uses it in a different way elsewhere. So it's, there's no consistency to that, to, mm. to that style. Mm. So uh, I don't know. The best quote I found uh, about this, and I say the best quote, I wasn't looking for a quote, but I was like, uh, overwhelmed, uh, overstimulated by this film. And one reviewer uh, said, directors over 40 should not be allowed to watch MTV. (laughs) Oliver Stone himself said, I did watch a lot of MTV in preparation for this film. Yeah, well, there's a deleted scene that's straight off of MTV because it's Dennis Leary talking into a camera about Mickey and Mallory, just like he did on MTV for about two years. Um, But yeah, he says, um, Oliver Stone, don't expect to understand every changeover in this film. It's playing off instinct texture, the deconstruction of reality. And I'm like, piss off, mate. Don't patronise me and... um, Stop giving me a headache. So I think they start off on their killing spree, but then we flash back to I Love Mallory, uh, uh, an I Love Lucy style uh, sitcom um, about abuse. Which is good. It's good. This is a really good idea because what this has done, 
it, it, it takes something and, and goes, right, well, thematically, I'm making a comment here and I'm, using, I'm mm. basically saying we are sold this idea of the perfect nuclear family in America through sitcoms like I Love Lucy and I'm showing you how untrue that image of the family is by making this awful, grotesque version of that. And it's clear and it's done well. Yes, and that's uh, Rodney Dangerfield, who we spoke about recently on the Caddyshack episode. Stone said, I loved him in Back to School, <laughs> which I wasn't expecting to say. He said he looks like a Roman perversion in this scene, <laughs> a grotesque clown. Uh, he didn't really understand some of what he was being asked to do, but he said he trusted Oliver and... Right. Yeah, he trusted him though as well because he let Rodney Dangerfield rewrite all his own lines in this scene as well. Right, and it's genuinely disturbing, you know, how he looks, what he's saying. He's threatening her with this. He's, with... Thre- he's basically threatening that he's going to come upstairs and abuse his daughter. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's all very disturbing. Well, not threatening. He's telling her that's what he's going to do. It's all. It's. It's. I've written down here. Horrible, horrible, horrible. I've laughed more already than in true romance. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, it's so. It's you have to laugh. I didn't laugh. Oh, I did. I laughed because it's it's it, it, it's a, it's laughing. It's shock laughter. It's not laughing because yeah. it's funny. It's laughing because you have to react in some way because it's so extreme. And we see uh, Mickey shows up at the door, and it's kind of love at first sight between the pair. And then we cut to a Coca Cola advert, hmm? a genuine Coca Cola advert, and apparently. Uh, they were they were livid when they saw the finished film. But the, the best thing is that they were approached and they gave permission yes. without knowing what the film was, and then saw the film and went, "What the?" You know, someone got fired that day. Someone got fired. Did you read the script? Oh, I sort of glanced through it. it. Said, "You know, it's Quentin Tarantino." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah did you read it? <laughs> did you did you read the I Love Mallory scene? Because that's where our advert is in the horrific incest scene <laughs> and a few minutes later we come back to this sequence and mickey shows up and kills mallory's parents and that's when uh they go on the run uh get married um kind of bonded by blood so there's weird marriages in both these films as well there's kind of a shotgun marriage in in yeah. romance and then well, this one, is one's a marriage and one <laughs> is what not really a marriage yeah but they call it they say it's their wedding day yeah i know um, and we also, at this point, meet Robert Downey Jr. as Wayne Gale, the presenter of American Maniacs. What do you think? Um, well, I've I've watched him. He based it on an Australian investigative journalist called Steve Dunleavy. Mm. Have you watched any of him? No. I He's mean... quite similar. Oh, really? <laughs> He's quite similar to him. Um, but this is why I think this character is so good, mm. because... You watch him and you go, I've seen that character. Like yes. It's a really, really well-drawn, familiar yeah. uh, trope of that kind of guy. The yeah. bit where he's like pushing in front of his crew and pushing in front of the cops to be involved and kick down the door of the people. The, it's like you get that. And Stone it's call- like John Stewart on amphetamines. <laughs> Stone calls him a, a totally spineless jellyfish. And he... I, Alistair Stewart, not John Stewart. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. John, you know, Alistair Stewart does like police camera action or something. It'd be like that if they went, Alistair, we're going in a new direction on this. We want you front and centre. We don't want you to record your links afterwards and then just throw to the footage. We want you there. I thought you were being unnecessary. Totally tough on John Stewart. No, Alistair Stewart. <laughs> Alistair Stewart. And um, I'm not being tough on him. I'd have loved to have seen that show on ITV. Do you like the voice? It reminded me of that guy that used to do Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Robin Leach, the accent he okay, does. Yeah. But um, I like him. Yeah. I, I love him in this. I lo- You know I love Robert Downey Jr. Mm, like, much more than I do. It's a, it's a good character for him, this one. And fantastic. I would like to have seen the Tarantino version. And the Tarantino version, yeah, like I say, he is the he's the arc. You know, it starts with him and it ends with him. And Mickey Mallory mm. are in the background, which it should be in this. And the whole prison thing, the prison thing is the backbone to the movie. So you've got the prison, you've got Robert Downey Jr., those are the arcs, and you dip in and out of Mickey and Mallory. It's, re- it's a really good script. I've just noticed something. I've written down, he, he, he says about viewers, they're nitwits in Zombieland. Mm-hmm. Woody Harlston was in Zombieland. Um, And so uh, they're on this killing spree and we see the world falling in love with Mickey and Mallory. We cut to sort of talking heads. Did you recognise the London talking head, the punk guy? No. Cockney guy. That is Jared Harris when he was very young. No. Yeah. Really? I didn't actually clock it the first time. I just saw it on the credits. And then when I rewatched it, it was like very clearly him. I got a weird problem with this, and it's in, in a movie that plays so uh, like free and easy with reality. There's one thing that just uh, in the midst of all the chaos that I couldn't I couldn't truck with, uh, which is the fact that when like the, they're on the cover of Time magazine and whatever, 
those are like they're not using like mug shots or shots from like anything. Those are professional photo shoots. Like there's Mickey mm. posing, yep. like to the camera, looking all sharp in a suit with a great background. And it's just like at that point, you're going. Obviously, like um, they haven't done professional. They haven't gone to a photo studio because they're on the run. They've been on the run for three weeks. Uh, so w- I didn't like that. You, you you shouldn't be questioning the reality in any of this film. I know, but I did uh, in that section because when they're in a hotel room, we've got uh, two Oliver Stone films playing on the telly: mm. uh, Midnight Express and and Scarface. The violent, the only the violent scenes from those movies. While outside their window is being broadcast uh, the history of violence in the 20th century. It's a bit heavy handed, you know, the, the, the message here about the media having this effect on them. Yeah, that motel room scene particularly, I wrote down, I've had enough of this because it was the angles, the stuff going on outside the window, mm-hmm. the lighting. I was, fe- I was starting to feel nauseous. Yeah, and 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 um, the, apparently shooting. There's a there's a woman they've got tied up who Mickey uh, Mallory leaves and Mickey does something terrible to her, and in the interview on one of the documentaries, Woody Woody says that shooting that got a little extreme. So I'm glad it was cut for the movie, and then whoever's interviewing him says, "Oh no, he's restored it for this director's cut." And Woody looks really shocked, and then they cut away to something else. Really? Yeah. So that was a bit of a strange thing to keep. I've in. seen. I saw the director's cut. And there's nothing. There's not. No, it's it's more alluded to, right. isn't it? Um, so yeah. So uh, we meet Tom Sizemore uh, as Jack Skegnetti, who we talked about at length on the last podcast. Um, we meet him sniffing some knickers. Yeah, after after the petrol station attendant has been uh, murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the worst fucking head I've ever got in my life. Next time, don't be so fucking eager. Which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, that scene stayed with me, actually. Really, it did with me. Yeah. When I, was, I don't know why. There's something Maybe there. being a, watching it as a teenage boy, it was just a lot of disturbing. Because he's young as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of disturbing things going on. Mm-hmm. She's quite sexy. Um, and then let's get on to the, the stuff I did have a problem with. Oh, um, you're picking the Native American... I, I am, yes, simply because um, he's obviously trying to make a point about the the plight of the Native Americans at the hands of the white man, but it just feels really underdeveloped and and like an afterthought. Yeah, I also think he's trying to make some, and this is, again, a half-arsed comment on how spiritualism and nature are what's important. Mm. And, you know, we've had that rotted away by the media. Yeah. But he's a bit of a sort of a magical Native American. It felt a bit like a cliche, um, and again, heavy-handed. Like he, 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 too much TV is projected on their chest. Oh God, wrote that um, down. I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> is it that? Are we doing? Are we hitting it that hard on the nose? Too much TV, demon." <laughs> uh, and and then we see them kill the Native American. Mickey does. Uh, and straight after, Scagnetti strangles a girl to death. And at this point, it's just a bit relentless. And I'm thinking, why am I still watching this? Like, he's hammering me over the head with the same point over and over again. And I'm finding it quite hard to watch. So uh, the bit with Jack Scagnetti yes. is, uh, I remember that as a kid, and I remember it really being just uh, uh, just such a horrifying moment. The fact that she's like, this young girl and he strangles her and... But uh, that is bad, obviously. Yes. And yet the thing that stayed with me forevermore that I will never be able to forget and which I was horribly reminded of uh, again. I say reminded, I hadn't forgotten. Those pants are the worst thing I've ever seen an actor ever be forced to wear in the history of cinema. The fact that they're sort of so high-waisted, they come up above his navel, they're shiny black, and then when you get to the rear, it's just a string between his buttocks it's upsetting. And if you haven't seen the movie, I, I hope my description just then has shocked you as much as seeing them shocked. Me. Now, I didn't get this from the film, but 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 Oliver Stone claims that, that Scagnetti is obsessed with Mickey. He's possessed by the same demon and he's killing this girl to try and channel Mickey's power. I didn't get any of that, really. I just thought he's a psycho. Yeah, I thought he was a psycho as yeah. well. I, I, see, here's my problem. One of my problems with this movie, again, is that... You're making a movie and you're sort of talking about how Mickey and Mallory are murderers and yet the media is turning them into the star, these stars, and people kind of love them. And like, that's one thing to do. But you as the filmmaker have surrounded them with such horrifying characters who are fundamentally as bad, if not worse, 
than Mickey and Mallory, that you are kind of like, you're basically sort of making them the, the heroes of the, the story because... That's, but that's what he's trying to do. Okay. They, 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 have, they have not been served well by uh, the media, by the prison system, by the police system. And so that is what he's getting at. But sh- We've, They've been created by their parents and by the media, these two killers. Right. Um, but you, what I'm getting is, uh, we may be saying the same thing here, but what I'm getting is that this idea that, you know, if you, uh, Jack Scagnetti is, is worse than Mickey and Mallory. You know, or as bad. Mm. So the cop chasing them is worse than them. So uh, Tommy Lee Jones isn't much better. Uh, you know, a prison uh, warden who clearly likes violence. Uh, Wayne Gale is like, you know, the minute he's handed a gun at the end, he goes and uh, starts shooting people himself, you know, the parents and everything. And, and so they are the best thing in this hideous movie. They're the, 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 you know. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, surely to sort of be commenting on them being these horrific creations of the media, you want to you want to sort of single them out as being quite bad, mm. as opposed to populating the movie with worse people than them. I'm confused. Okay, should we? Can we take a break? Let's take a break, and I'll, I'll, I'll go for a little <laughs> walk as you like. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Join me, Melissa Reddy, and listen to my brand new podcast, Between the Lines. I'll be speaking to the biggest names in football about the captivating, behind-the-scenes stories fans want to hear. From major talking points to untold anecdotes, you'll hear from some of football's leading stars as well as those working in the shadows. In our first episode, I spoke to former Spurs manager Maurizio Pochettino about that Amazon documentary. We feel responsible because it was uh, very difficult to say yes to open the door to Amazon. Only we watch with Jesus the 25 minutes first because it was until we uh, left the club. And on our latest episode, I investigate how prevalent and damaging social media abuse is in football. And I was like taking all this negativity onto myself and I did. I kind of lost myself and my personality because I knew everything that was going on around it. And it's not until I actually got to a stage where I thought, I can't take this anymore. It is becoming too much for me that I spoke out about it. Craving football insight? Well, look no further. Listen to Between the Lines with me, Melissa Reddy, via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. This was a Stakhanov production. Okay, have you recovered? Uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about any of that ever again. I think basically I was just saying what the movie was about, uh, which is... Uh, You're no, sounding a bit like Oliver Stone on the commentary right now. Yeah, no one's going to come out of that well. Not me, not Oliver, you know. Um, let's talk about Act 2, Mickey and Mallory go to jail. Uh, they, they get arrested and we cut to a year later, um, and that's an hour into the film. Uh, I don't know. I felt like the film was almost coming to an end at that point, uh, but it obviously wasn't. We meet Tommy Lee Jones as Warden Dwight McCluskey. Um, 
who has this violent walk and talk with Scagnetti. Uh, and he is playing an out and out redneck is how Oliver Stone um, describes him. He uses a pincer to, to calm his mm. inmates down. So I've got two points here. First of all, of all the scenes, like I, I, Tom Sizemore at this point is a brilliant actor. Fantastic. Tommy Lee Jones is obviously a brilliant actor. They're delivering from reading Quentin Tarantino's original script dialogue, which is almost identical to what Quentin Tarantino wrote. I want to see those two do that scene. I, I really want to enjoy it. These two guys working to like actors mm. working together. I, I, I don't want 17 different film stocks used <sighs> In that period. And genuinely, I think at this point in the commentary, Oliver Stone's literally just shouting out what film stock he's using in each <laughs> bit. And I'm like, I don't care. I wonder if this film, I'm thinking out loud now, but I wonder if this film is better with your eyes shut. I will say, because I'm being quite down right now, I was so looking forward to watching this again because I loved, 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 loved this movie mm. the first time I saw it as a kid. And I, I, think, I think it's because it's a movie which has... Uh, these grand intentions, but filters them all through like a very simplistic filter. Uh, filters them through a simplistic filter. Well then, uh, so I just think it's you watch it and you go now as an adult, you go right. It's a kids movie. It's mm. like a really quite a simple movie. The one other thing I wanted to say at this point, I wrote it down. First actual plot point: the bit where Tommy Lee Jones goes, "Here's the plan." We want you to do this, Jack Segnetti, and kill them when they're out there, rid the world of these people. At this point, I just realised that I've just been watching two people wandering around murdering people, taking mushrooms, murdering more people, and that's all I've been watching. And I was like, great, some, some, mm. there's, there's, there's jeopardy now. Mm. There's a plan in motion that Mickey and Mallory don't know about. There's tension, which this film has sorely lacked until this point. And apparently there was tension on set because they were they were shooting this in a prison, mm. some of these scenes. Uh, and to be in that prison, you were, you'd had to serve at least two life sentences. So they were saying that the inmates really didn't have much to lose. And uh, they were saying they all either wanted to sleep with Juliet or Robert, <laughs> the guys in that prison. They were kind of split down the middle, which one they were, they, they were shouting and catcalling. Mm. Um so, yeah, he's making his point about they talk about the prison being at 200 percent capacity. It's a ticking time bomb, which is a situation that's only got worse in America since this film was made. So he's making his points. Uh, and then Mickey starts justifying himself. He's, he's being interviewed by Wayne Gale. Um, and this is based on uh, an interview that uh, Geraldo Rivera did with Charles Manson, where Oliver Stone thinks that Geraldo looked like the crazy person and, and Manson was making more sense Um but, yeah, yeah uh, Mickey talks about a wolf, uh, doesn't know why it's a wolf, but he's been educating himself in prison. The idea is that he's, he's, he's more intellectual now. Mm. And um, at the same time, uh, Skegnetti talks about Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. So, obviously, uh, Olive Stone had just made JFK, where he's very much saying that Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't acting alone so that was his way of saying that this character's an idiot by, <laughs> by giving him that line which I thought was quite funny and um, we've got, skipped over the bit where uh, Mallory is singing in her cell I only mm -hmm. bring that up because I don't know where it, it is certainly just going to be me on this but when they approach the cell and you can hear her singing I just couldn't get space balls out of my head <laughs> where the Druish princess is in her cell going nobody knows <laughs> the trouble I feel like, you know the scene in that cell where she runs at the at the door and sort of almost headbutts the, the, the door, the camera. Yeah. Um, Stone on that commentary is laughing about the fact, and I've, I've, I've also read this, that not one but two cameramen bust their face up trying to shoot that scene. Yeah, I don't know how, though. I read that as well, and I'm like, it's, whose fault is that? Surely it's the camera people. You are able to sort of go, oh, she runs at that, Oliver. <laughs> I mean, unless he's like, I don't give a fuck. Put your camera there. I don't know how they injured it, because she hits it so hard. It was like I don't. I'm I'm confused. I don't know the, the I don't know the logistics. So uh, that's Act Two done with. I'm powering through this because I want to talk about the, uh, the what happened afterwards. But um, Act Three, Mickey and Mallory escape. So we've got a riot. Mm. We've got. Oh a wait, riot. can I play the riot? This is just because. Oh great! This I was hoping you'd. Make, I mean, obviously you were going to mention the riot. It's you. Yes, you're not an idiot. But uh, uh, this 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 will give you an idea of the riot. Mickey and Mallory has 
yet to be written. Are you in danger, Wayne? Can you tell us? Are you in danger? The broken out here. Unlike anything I've ever seen. The cop. Batonga will stand alongside them. What's happening? You like that, didn't you? <laughs> I love the way it was on my it was on my pirated soundtrack. Batonga, 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 and Batongaville. I mean, there's 90 minutes gone in the film, and again, I felt like it was ending. But there's another 30 minutes to go when when this escape happens. This escape feels like it goes on for a long time, and yet Stone wishes that he dwelled more on the the camera crew uh, and their lives before their deaths. Weirdly, because that's in the script. Oh, that's interesting. That's in the script. Because it was a strange thing for him to say, so I guess subconsciously he knew that there was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what he's referencing. Right. He's like, I, I should have stuck to that because you meet his entire crew. They all have names. They all have personalities. Like, like it's it, the script is great. And uh, Wayne Gale starts enjoying it, as you could hear there. The demon sort of comes out in him. He becomes a bit of a, a beast and starts killing himself. Um, Owen appears. Uh, uh, the guardian angel... Um, is what uh, Oliver Stone calls Owen, this character that helps them. Oh, yeah. Arliss Howard, I think, is the actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he is actually in the diner at the start. Very quickly, you you go past a booth and he's sitting in the booth. Okay. So he calls him their guardian angel, and I'm going to come back to him in a little bit. Okay. Can we quickly reference the other bit of music? Because I love Mm. that bit of music. That's Night on Bald Mountain, uh, which is a great uh, Russian composer called uh, Modest Morozgoski. Morozgoski. Anyway, I know it from the Earthworm Jim level. What the heck? But it's a brilliant piece of music. But the other great piece of music in the Prison Riot is obviously, and this is, this goes back to what you said at the start. Oliver Stone wants to have his cake and eat it because he's kind of he's going. It's disgusting how the media glorifies violence, and then he goes and glorifies violence because I wrote down how fucking cool is this moment. Mm. Bomb track by Rage Against the Machine as Mickey blows people away to escape, and I was like. You set that to that kick-ass song, and you were basically going, "How cool does this look?" Mm. Yeah, totally. It's con- it's contradicting a lot of what he's claiming about the film. I think um, that scene certainly does. I li- I like the shot through Wayne's hand, the literal and metaphorical shot through Wayne's oh, yeah. hand. I think that looks cool as well. Um, so yeah, we've got carnage and we've got chaos, and they're out. Um, and we're in a forest with Wayne begging for his life. Now, this goes on for a bit, doesn't it? I felt like this was going on forever. Wayne Gale begging to not be killed. and Yeah, if he'd been... Um, this is the last, I promise this is the last time I'm going to say it. But if he'd been in it from the very start, as he's in the script, last time I'm going to say it, then it would make more sense at the end. Like you'd you'd be you'd have gone on the you'd got you'd have gone on Wayne's journey, and so this his big outro would be just more more important. Does he die at the end of the the script, or do you have you not got that? Yeah, he, he, Oliver Stone said we had to kill him, or he would have followed them for the rest of their lives. In fact, he does die in it. He does because mm. I skipped to the end because I'll tell you in a bit. So, um, yeah, and they, they escape. We cut to news footage of death and violence and the Menendez brother and Tonya Harding and OJ and Fire and Demons and Mickey and Mallory driving a van with a couple of kids in the back. Hmm. Um, she's got her mum's hair in that scene. Her hair styled like her mum's was, which suggests to me that this circle of violence might continue. But Oliver Stone says it's not. He says the, they aren't going to pass this on to their kids. He believes that there's love at the end of the film and that love defeats the demon. Well, that's... Uh, Mickey. Yeah, Mickey says, you're going to be the last person we kill, Wayne. We're bored of mm. killing. This is it. You're our last one. Do you believe that? Uh, I, I'd believe anything Mickey said if I was in the room with him, yeah. So there is an alternate ending where Ooh. Owen, Arliss, Howard, the, the guardian angel... He escapes with them and he's in the back of that van. There's no kids, I don't think. Um, and he, they say they're going to drop him off and they're going to Mexico, but he wants to go with them. They don't want him with them. and He changes. His face changes immediately and he starts coming on to Mallory, knowing full well where that will lead. And Mickey pulls over to threaten him and he pulls out a shotgun and blows both their heads off. And that's the alternate ending. Um... But Oliver Stone didn't use it because he didn't feel like they should have a comeuppance like that. Mm, that's interesting. And he also said that they might come back, so keep watching for Natural Born Killers too, which as yet hasn't happened. 
Wow. Um, I want to talk about some deleted scenes because I don't, I don't know. That would creep me out. The way you told that story, or his face changed. I've made, made, made me feel really like I, I know there's just the two of us, and the whole office is closed, so it's just both of us here. <laughs> I bask. I got a bit scared of you then. His face changed. Didn't like that. Well, come on, let's get on with it. On my face will change. A um, couple of deleted scenes. There was a big dramatic scene, uh, a courtroom scene with Ashley Judd, who was completely cut out of the film. All right. She plays a teenager who survived uh, Mickey and Mallory coming to her house and killing. I think it's her sorority, maybe. Um, part one thing I like in that scene is a policeman calls Mickey and Mallory a cum sandwich, <laughs> uh, but Mickey cross examines her and with gritty malevolence and then kills her with a pencil. Um, <laughs> But he, Oliver Stone said Mallory is sort of in on it. And in his opinion, she's changed at this point. So it kind of contradicted the film. Okay. Um, and then there is a scene with people called, the, it's called the Hun Brothers. Um, two bodybuilders uh, who uh, were cast in the film. I think they're twins. Oliver Stone says of this scene, I screwed up. They are, they are acting over the top, but because I misdirected them. Um, they're, it's quite odd looking blokes. They call themselves the Barbarian Brothers. But they talk about loving Mickey and Mallory and then we sort of sc- the camera scrolls down and we, re- we see that Mickey and Mallory have actually removed their legs um, but didn't kill them because they recognised them halfway through taking off their legs and s- realised they were fans. Oh, jeez. So um, these are... These are, are these, so just to <laughs> ask you a question, are these scenes that Oliver Stone took out or yes. the MPBA, MPAA? He said he took that scene out because he misdirected the brothers. He right. says they're overacting. But I have got an interesting anecdote about that story. From Roger Avery. Okay. So he said, um, regarding the Natural Born Killer script, he said, I wrote one scene as a favour for Quentin. When people started telling him they thought it was the best scene in the script, he neglected to remember that I wrote it. Quentin was trying to get financing for Natural Born Killers back in the day when he was going to direct it. One source of money was from the Paul brothers, these two bodybuilder actor types, but he had to include them in the film. He told me that he just couldn't bring himself to write it, so he turned to me. As a favour to Quentin, I wrote a scene. Uh, It came at a low point in my career, but I wrote it with every ounce of energy I had, and I believe it to be the finest scene I've ever written. It pulled me out of a slump. The next thing I know, people are telling Quentin that the scene is the best thing in the script. Oliver Stone told me it was his favourite scene and his reason for doing the movie, but Quentin would just nod when they told him how good it was and he never told them I wrote it. That caused a bit of a rift in our friendship because I thought it was kind of low of him. Whatever, it's water under the bridge. I'm sure he had his reasons. The irony is that Stone ended up cutting the scene saying that he fucked it up. Wow. So a bit more bit more Avery Tarantino blood. Yeah. Um, and so there were 155 cuts imposed on this film by the MPAA. Uh, As I said to you outside, just before we walked in, when you were telling me about this, four minutes, though, in total, right? Yeah, but that can be... a Well, we've just established how many cuts are in this film. So uh, the thing they didn't like was the energy and chaos, and and Stone keep coming back to that on the commentary. They couldn't... That's what upset them. And they didn't like the... the, uh, combining sex and death as well. He said the MPA have a real problem with, with sex and death. So a lot of scenes involving... Not all of them, though. <laughs> yes, a lot of them. So um, the UK release was delayed while the BBFC boss, James Furman, contacted US police and the FBI to find out if there was any connection between the violence in the film and real-life violence and if it had inspired any copycat cases. And there's even a section on Wikipedia now, of copycat crimes from Natural Born Killers. Mm. Uh, John Grisham tried to sue Oliver Stone over it. A friend of his got killed by a couple who um, went on a killing spree after watching the film. Um, He lost that suit. And Robert Downey Jr. said, whoever this Grisham guy is, he's clearly at war with himself and looking for a scapegoat. Uh, But even the Columbine shooters used the NBK code when planning their crime. So uh, Stone came to the BBFC and screened it for them. He then did a QA and a with them. He then told them about his MPAA cuts and he showed them his original cut. Uh, he got hold of that where the, the sexual violence um, was reinserted because he felt it countered claims that Mickey and Mallory were being presented in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Uh, Furman agreed. Um, he felt that the more violent version made them less attractive. And so uh, he put them back. But Warner Brothers... Um, decided to release the cut version because they didn't want to strike a whole bunch of new prints for the UK market. It would be too expensive. Oh. So we got the edited version. Um, then the Dunblane massacre happened. And while there was absolutely no connection between the film and the tragedy, um, Warner asked the BBFC if they would reconsider their certification. And the BBFC refused, actually. So Warner took it upon themselves to, to not release the film on video. 
So in a weird, uh, weirdly, the film ended up screening on Channel 5 in England due to a pre-existing deal before it came out on video <laughs> in England, which is why you ended up watching it a pirate copy. Wow. No doubt. Um, the script you're reading, there was a war about that. Do you know this? Yeah, I know about this because Quentin releases all his original scripts yeah. and he wasn't allowed. In this Stone episode. and the producers uh, objected, arguing that in selling them the rights to his film, uh, he'd surrendered the publishing rights as well. And, I mean, his scripts would sell hundreds of thousands of copies, so they ended up coming to a deal. But there was, that was, there was six months where they were at war over it. Um, they, uh, you know, tested, uh, when they tested this film with people, they either loved it or hated it. It was the same with critics, the same with audiences. Um, I've got a couple of quotes here about it. Uh, Quentin Tarantino says, To me, the best thing about Oliver Stone is his energy, but his biggest problem is that his obviousness cancels out his energy and his energy pumps up his obviousness. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good quote. And uh, here's another quote about the film. I think that it's technically brilliant, but as a movie, I abhor it. I think it's awful and ugly and a complete waste of talent. All this sex and violence, sex and violence. He's like a dog chasing his tail. And that is from Oliver Stone's wife. <laughs> now his ex-wife. Wow. That's, was that the wife he was divorcing during yes. this movie? Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's Jeez. pretty much all I've got. Uh, any more? Uh, no, I think I think you've covered it. I think you've covered... Uh, I mean, you didn't mention, obviously, Steve Wright. He's another really well-drawn character, the academic who appears on one of Wayne's shows talking. I, again, I mean, just the, the bit where... When Gail goes, yet Mallory said she wants to kill you. And he goes, I never really believe what women say to me. And he's just a he's that self-satisfied academic character, again, is another really well-drawn thing. Yeah, and, and there's a lot more of him on the deleted scenes, actually. All right. But not one particular speech, which I might be getting to. Okay. Uh, so we do the bits? All the, all the bits. Okay, what was your favourite scene, Alex? The sitcom scene. It's really, really great. Uh, I just think it's... You know, it's horrifying, it's ugly, it's so extreme. You know, you don't often see cinema uh, made like that. And it, it's, it's, I just kept writing the word horrible down over and over again and then laughing in shock. And yet, I think just because I'm so familiar with that sitcom trope of like, you know, when <laughs> when Mickey enters carrying that huge like lump of beef and the audience is like, yeah, because he's a series regular. Like, he's yeah. coming. It's just, it's done really well. The yeah. Rodney Dangerfield, like you compare, like when we were talking about Caddyshack and how that was his first film and the sort of like, he's like, in Caddyshack, he's delivering his lines too fast. Like the, He's just doing a stand-up routine. Yeah, but he's sort of like he's got this sort of crazy energy because he's a bit nervous because it's his first film. And on this, even though it's disgusting and his character is this monster, like the lines are delivered really well. Yeah, I think this might have been his only dramatic role, and I think it's a shame that we didn't get more from him. Um, yeah, Oliver Stone said he loved doing the sitcom. He said he'd always wanted to try his hand at that, and so that sort of scratched that itch of. Yep. Taking on the sitcom. Done very well as well in The Golden Child. <laughs> they they <laughs> use the sitcom uh, motif. Uh, do you want to know what Quentin Tarantino thinks of that scene? Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't see it in the script. I haven't got to it in the script if it's in the script. I can't imagine it is in the script because it doesn't feel like it is. Here's Quentin. I just hated that whole Rodney Dangerfield sequence so much. It was so unfunny, so disgusting. It did the number one thing I would never do. It came up with a little peanut psychology origin for why these people were the way they were. I rejected that in every way. And then that awful scene gives you a little pop psychology analysis. I had my name taken off the script just so people wouldn't think that I had written that. (laughs) Right. And I disagree with Quentin because it's my favourite scene as well. Really? Yeah, I'm with you on that. Why do you like it? I just think it's an inspired way to tackle what is a very tricky subject. Mm. Yeah. Simple it's, as that. I mean, you could argue that it is like, you know, it's very, it's it's quite easy to follow. Like, it's, not, you know, it's very clear what he's saying. We're sold this idea of the family. You know, the reality isn't true and using that as a mm. way of doing it. But in a movie as confused as this about other issues, mm. it is a moment of clarity. It reminds me, it's like an unsubtle David Lynch. I feel like David Lynch does that in a lot of his movies, particularly Blue Velvet and, and Twin Peaks, is, is telling us what's happening underneath the, the sort of, oh, that's my, that's my parents calling me. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, wow. What a moment during the sitcom scene <laughs> oh, no. from Natural Born Killers. Mum and Dad are on the oh, phone. Oh, God, Dad can hear me. <laughs> Daddy Dangerfield. Um, they've rung off. Sorry about that. Uh, all right, MVW, Alex. 
it's one of two people. Um, I think I fell in love with Juliette Lewis uh, a little bit in this movie. Uh, I think she's brilliant, but it's it's the very start uh, where she does the scary walk towards the one surviving redneck in the bar and mm. she's like a monster and she puts her hands up and sort of creeps towards him. And I just love that. So it's either Juliette Lewis, and I'm not going to pick one, it's either Juliette Lewis or my favourite actor of all time, Robert Downey Jr. So I, I think he's just so good as uh, Wayne Gale. Um, I love him. I love the character of Wayne Gale. I don't see I don't see too much of a problem with Wayne Gale, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> uh, I'm going Woody. Oh, I'm going yeah. Woody, just because it was such a transformative performance and it just, it just made you see an actor in a new light and he really dominates the screen when he's on it. And um, yeah, so he's my man. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, what would you change? Well, as I just said, I love Wayne Gale. Love me my Wayne Gale. Don't kill Wayne Gale. Like, I I thought this time, I, I remember watching it as a kid and it really upset me. Uh, and I thought this time I'd be like, well, it'll make more sense this time. And you'll understand why they had to kill Wayne Gale. And it didn't. And I don't like it. It still upset me. Uh, and part of it, it, it might be because he's a TV host, so I feel an affinity with him. And part of it might be because Robert Downey Jr. is so insanely likeable. Uh, it could be a combination of those two. But I just don't like him dying at the end. I like him as a character. I don't like killing Robert Downey Jr. in a film. Fair enough. Yours? Uh, I think the film should chill the fuck out a bit. Um, but no, there is a, um, a line of dialogue from Tarantino's script that uh, you kind of alluded to. Uh, and I think it makes a good point that the film fails to make. So I would have kept this in. So this is, um, this is the line. Um, it's, a, it's a really a theme of the film. Um, a psychiatrist, I think, I guess it would be the Stephen Wright character, um, is analysing the authorities' treatment of the killers. He says, uh, what they decided to do was set up a kangaroo medical court that found them crazy. Uh, then they got them transferred to Lobotomy Bay, as it's referred to in psychiatric circles. Put them on a strict dope and electric shock diet, and Mickey and Mallory ceased to be a problem to anybody except the orderlies who clean out the bedpans, which, if you want to see them get theirs, is all well and good, but there's something being said here. What the board is saying is we give up. Mickey and Mallory ran amok in polite society. They were put in an alternative society, and they ran amok there to all the powers that be can't deal with these two kids and whatever can't be assimilated has to be terminated. I think that's a really great speech and I think it makes a really intelligent point and I don't think they should have cut that out. I agree. Excellent. Wow. So we've reached the end of Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. Shall we do the verdict? Let's do it. Right. Okie dokie. Uh, there's only two of us this week. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be a draw. Um, <laughs> no. I'll, I'll go first because I feel off the back of talking about Natural Born Killers, the first thing I'd like to say is I don't, I, I, I feel like I've said I hate this movie and I don't hate this movie. Mm. I love a lot of this movie and it's, uh, there are some uh, amazing moments in this movie and there are some great ideas and there's, there are some fantastic visuals. There's just too much of all of them. Just too much. Mm. And I, I, having started reading, and I know I haven't finished it, so, you know, this my way is to comment on something without fully knowing the whole story. I haven't finished Quentin's script, but I prefer it already. And I just kind of wish, you know, we, we'd have another great movie of a Quentin Tarantino script if this hadn't been messed about with as much as Oliver Stone did. And I think that's a shame. I, I, I think if, you know... Although he would never have directed it by all accounts, he didn't want to direct it in the end, like Chris said. Mm. I think, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino script. It would have been a movie if it made sense and hadn't been chopped to fuck. Then we'd have, we'd be sitting here go, talking about that. We talk about true romance. Like, you know, if a director had just directed his script, mm. you know, added their style to it as a director, but kept his script instead of chopping it to pieces structurally. Uh, so that's, you know, but again, there's some great stuff in Natural Born Killers. However... Uh, True Romance, uh, for me, is just a, an enjoyable movie. Uh, I, I love Tony Scott as a director. I think it looks great. Uh, it's it's a journey. It's fun. It's dark, but not so dark. Um, it's just a better film. I don't really have much more than that. It's just the better film. Um, I think they both both these films have got perfectly cast leads. We didn't talk about the chemistry between Woody and Juliet, but mm. it's not far off what you've got in, in, in um, you know, uh, Patricia and... Um, Christian, you know, I think yeah. you've got a lot of sex going on on screen. But, um, and, you know, Natural Born Killers is a, a sort of prescient, grim glimpse into our media 
obsessed future. Um, That's true. I, we it, didn't touch on it, that. No, it was. It's a, got worse. <laughs> it's gotten a lot worse. And I would actually describe watching this now as the celluloid equivalent of scrolling through the fiery hellscape of Twitter. <laughs> um, but that's something that I can't really recommend. I found it quite painful to watch, just like I feel find going on Twitter quite painful. Mm. Um, whereas I find True Romance is quite thrilling to watch, really. Mm. Um, I mean, it's towards the end, it does seem to have this violence that Oliver Stone tells us he's raining against in Natural Born Killers. But I'm a big boy. I can take it. Mm. Uh, and it is just, True Romance is just this blast of adrenaline, fueled fun and the better movie. So that's two for True Romance. Uh, True Romance is the winner. Uh, for the record, though, Victoria... Uh, i got it. Do you want me to read oh, it out? Oh, you've got it. Great. Yeah, let's hear what Vicky has to say. Um, I'd choose True Romance. This is She's messaged us. Um, Although I can't bear the tart with a heart trope, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, NBK is no longer as clever as it thinks it is or was. And as a Quentin Tarantino movie, it's just better, funnier, more memorable... Etc. Three for three on True Romance. That is it. True Romance is the champion on this week's Clash Pod. Okay, let's look ahead. Let's look ahead, team, to next week. And it's our first ever horror countdown special show as we work towards the greatest festival in the history of the world, Halloween. And so I've got... Two horror movies mm. for you. I gave you a clue on Monday, uh, which uh, was, what's up, Woody? You're burning up. Uh, are you okay, Woody? You're burning up. Something along those lines. Anyway, uh, so do you want to have a guess or should I just tell you, Chris? Just tell me. The films are The Wicker Man, the original for you, Christopher, <gasps> and Victoria. Seeing as you've been absent this week and... That upsets me. You get The Wicker Man from 20... No. 2006. No. Starring Nicolas Cage. No. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Victoria? You've never seen it. You're in for a treat. It's a <laughs> wonderful movie. Probably one of those few remakes that's better than the original. Uh, right, we're <laughs> out of here. If you want to get in touch with us, please do on Twitter at ClashPod or you can email us show at ClashPod.com. Uh, we are all over that. Uh, thanks again. Do rate reviewers wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe if possible as well. That would be lovely. Apple, Spotify or elsewhere. We'll be back to talk with Wicker Man next week in preparation for Halloween. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.